pastor. Well, I can assure you this morning that those who follow another God aren't singing the way you did today. And it's not that vocally or musically you're any superior to them. In fact, some of us may be profoundly inferior. But when you have a Lord like Jesus, your heart and lips can't help but sing. Amen. With that, I want to invite your attention to Matthew, or excuse me, Mark chapter 8 and 2 Peter chapter 1. These two texts are on the same event. Mark 8 describes it. Mark 9 describes it, and then 2 Peter 1 explains it and applies it. Uh, as you're turning there, I want to say to you that I had a difficult time in the second grade. I spent three of the best years of my life in the second grade. <laughs> Not really, but I probably should have. But I had a very difficult teacher, Miss Sadler. She had horn-rimmed glasses. And I think she got off the ark with Noah. But she was rather dogmatic and narrow-minded. Every time I came upon an equation, such as two plus two, whether it was two elephants plus two elephants or two apples plus two apples, that woman insisted that I always answer four. And if I did not, she had the audacity and the unmitigated gall and arrogance to take that nasty red pen and mark through my answer and count my grade down. Did any of you have a teacher like that? <laughs> yes, indeed. You had Miss Sadler too, didn't you? Well, I'm being a bit silly here to make a point. My, my bank is the same way, of course. In fact, every year, my bank and yours are audited to make sure that they have calculated their figures on my account and your account to the very penny. Indeed, they are very precise and narrow when it comes to those figures. Beloved, I say all this to say that there are some questions that have only one answer. And these questions, when it comes to the Christian faith, are all generally within the same ballpark. How can a man or woman reach God? How can a sinner enter into heaven? How can we be made right with God? There's just one answer, and it's the most hated truth in the United States and Europe today, in my judgment, and that is through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Amen. And I, I, I want you to understand, I, I'm, I'm not suggesting even that there are a number of options when it comes to this issue, and Jesus is merely the best. Oh no, Jesus is not the best way to God in heaven, he is the only way provided by God. Amen. He's it. And there is no other provided by God himself. Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone happen to be the way. And you have to understand, he makes some rather high demands. And the disciples provide some good reasons to believe that. Now, in Mark chapter 8, we have Jesus making demands of those who would follow him. And then we have him demonstrating his worth to make those demands. Peter applies that in 2 Peter chapter 1. But I want us to begin looking 
here at the demands that Jesus Christ makes. Now what he's talking about here from chapter 8 verse 34 to chapter 9 verse 8 happens to be the kingdom. He's offering the demands of the kingdom, then he is previewing the kingdom in chapter 9. He is showing what the kingdom happens to be. Now the demands begin in verse number 34. When he called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Now that's one demand here. The demand here happens to involve, you've got to make yourself second. Self becomes second. Now I have just overthrown about 40 years of American thinking, if not more. And I've got to say to you, you've got to understand that there are many points with the Christian faith where God and His Son collide with American values. God is not an American. He's blessed us. He's blessed us remarkably. And I think that there are probably some principles on which we operate where we converge with His values, but God's greatest desire is not to be an American and replicate Americanism around the globe. Now, I do know a few countries who could greatly improve themselves with a representative form of democracy in a constitution like we've got. Don't misunderstand me. But when it comes to the values personally and as far as family is concerned that we hold, God is at many ways at variance and a collision course, especially with this notion that we put ourselves first. God was not into the me generation. And so to follow Jesus Christ, we've got to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Him. Self has got to be second. Then, not only that, but earth has got to be second. The values and temporal values of the world have got to be second. Because Jesus said in verse 35, whoever desires to save his life will lose it. From a human perspective, a worldly perspective, if you attempt to save and preserve your life on your own terms, you will lose it. But if you will lose and abandon your life for my sake and the gospel's sake, you will save it. And then he goes on to say in verse 36, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole temporal world but loses his eternal soul, to par paraphrase? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Do you realize you and I are going to be dead a lot longer than we're going to be alive? Has that ever occurred to you? And so we've got to be the kind of people who prioritize that life on the other side. Eternity's got to come first, Christ has got to come first, self second, and the temporal world second. But that's not all when it comes to these demands that Jesus makes. Look at verse 38. And, and there is no convenient way to remove the hard edges of this. For whoever's ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with holy angels. Jesus Christ does not accept cowards. When it comes to His Word. By the way, the quota for Christian cowards is filled. We don't need any more. In other words, if you're cowardly in public about Jesus, you may not have Him and you cannot follow Him. Tremble before Him all the earth. Now these are high demands, and if they were coming merely from my mouth, they would sound very unusual and strange, wouldn't they? They would sound rather strange coming from Jennifer Lopez's mouth. 
They would sound rather strange coming from Kanye West's mouth. In fact, most everything he says is a bit strange. But the truth is, is that they would sound strange coming from a superstar's mouth, a celebrity's mouth. But these are coming from the mouth of Jesus Christ, and they sound perfectly legitimate to me. In case you doubt, look what he says in chapter 9. Assuredly, I say to you that there are some standing here, and there are the disciples and the people, There are some, not all, but some standing here who will not taste death, experience death, until they see the kingdom of God present with power. Well, wait a minute. The future kingdom of God? You mean some of these people are still alive? And some of these people that heard that in the first century are still living and waiting for the... No, no, that's not what he's saying at all. What Jesus does then is that he previews the kingdom of God, the future kingdom of God, beginning in... Verse number 2. I should have reminded you to bring a flame-retardant suit because you'll need it beginning with verse 2. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His clothes became shining, exceedingly white, like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. And Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, because he didn't know what to say. They were all greatly afraid. And a cloud came and overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son. Hear him. Suddenly, when they had looked around, they saw no one anymore, but only Jesus with themselves. Here, Jesus gives them a preview of the kingdom. Everything God is going to do, Dr. Criswell used to say, everything God's going to do in the future, he previews somewhere in the text of of Scripture. So there are many previews, to what we will see one day in the kingdom of God, and Jesus has just unveiled it. In fact, there is an awful lot of similarity between the vision of Jesus here in Mark 9 and what you see of Jesus in Revelation 1 and Revelation 19. Brilliant, outstanding similarities. I think that's by design. And In fact, in the scripture, there's a great, what we call, intertextuality. Oftentimes, one part picks up on a part that was many chapters or many books before. In fact, I'll just say to you, if you can get down the first three chapters of the Bible, you have just about the rest of it. If you get the first 65 books of the Bible, then you really have the book of Revelation. And so what you have in the Scripture is a great intertextuality where one part refers to another. And Mark 9, then, is the future coming and a a picture of the future kingdom of God. Jesus unveils it. And there's several things he unveils. There's, we've looked at the demands of the kingdom, then the entrance into the kingdom. We find in verse 2 a select group of disciples. We don't find the rest of the world. And only those then that have been heaven-born or kingdom-born or kingdom-bound. In other words, Jesus did not always let the whole world into his greatest events, only those who believe. And so Jesus is not interested in satisfying someone's curiosity with miracles and signs. 
Instead, he expects faith. And then he goes on in verse number 2 and 3 and, and unveils the focus of the kingdom. What he does here is that he, in, in, in a sense, if I can put it this way, drops his humanity and unveils his deity and glory and majesty and splendor. It, there's a sense in which when Jesus begins to radiate and is white, whiter than any cleaner can cleanse laundry, what he does is that he reaches into eternity past and unveils the glory and deity he had before the creation of the world and before his birth. And then he reaches into the future and shows what he's going to be in the kingdom. In other words, he reaches into the past and shows on the outside what he is on the inside. And then he reaches into the future and shows on the outside what he will be on the other side here. And it's a stunning picture. It so frightens the disciples that Peter just blurts out an idolatrous statement. As a Jew, he should have known better. As a disciple, he really should have known better. He said, let's build three worship places, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He becomes idolatrous. I don't know how much in his mind he was. He was greatly afraid, but that's oftentimes what happens even in a spectacular scene like this. The focus then of the kingdom is Jesus Christ. I appreciate the promised mansions, and I appreciate the music, and I appreciate the opportunity to make, meet the great heroes of the Bible, but in the future kingdom, the entire earth is going to go is going to go absolutely thrilled over the presence of Jesus Christ. Amen. The focus of the kingdom. Then the grace of the kingdom. Did you notice that two others appeared here? There's Elijah. The, the one of Mount Carmel fame where the fire fell with the 22nd prayer. But then Queen Jezebel threatened the life of Elijah and he ran into the desert and asked God to take his life. In other words, the threats of the painted witch Jezebel were more powerful and more effective with Elijah than the fire that fell from Carmel from God. James, in James 5.16, would use Elijah as an illustration of human weakness. Elijah is a sinner. And that's what you have here in this text. You have a sinner appearing in the world, or excuse me, on the Mount of Transfiguration with the Lord Jesus in all of His glory. And then we've got Moses. Moses who, on the precipice of the Promised Land, became so angry he took glory for himself when he provided water for Israel. Instead of speaking to the rock like God commanded, he hid it and then spoke to it indicating that he had something to do with the productivity or the production of water for Israel. And so he received some glory from it. People walked away and said, boy, that was a good whack by Moses, and that's not what God wanted. God wanted him to merely speak to it so God alone could get the glory. And you remember the sentence that God leveled against Moses, don't you? He said, you shall not enter the promised land. Not at all. And he buried him on Mount Nebo. All he was able to do was look over into Canaan's fair and happy land. Moses was excluded from the promised land. But here you've got Elijah and Moses with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration near Jerusalem is what you have here. Or at least not far. And so despite the fact that Elijah had sinned and appeared as a sinner on the pages of Scripture, 
Jesus lets him appear in his glory. And, and folks, Moses originally was excluded from the promised land, but in Christ he gets to go to the promised land. Did you notice that? He's there in the promised land. God lets him in. Why? Because God is gracious. Anytime someone repents and believes the gospel, they can be saved and lavished and plunged, immersed, marinated, embalmed in God's grace. The grace of the kingdom. Then there's the confusion of the kingdom. We've talked about that. Peter became somewhat idolatrous in this time. But then we move on to the love of the kingdom. Chapter 7, chapter 9, excuse me, verses 7 through 9. It had been 600 years since Israel had experienced the presence of God in this way. God would show up at the, te uh, at the temple. And before then, the tabernacle in a cloud that they called the Shekinah glory. God didn't want them to see him, but he would appear in a cloud. It had been 600 years, but now the glory and presence of God returns. It says here, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying this, and that's in the emphatic position in the Greek text, this is my beloved son, hear him. In the kingdom, all love and affection goes to Jesus. In the kingdom, the Holy Spirit is enamored and thrilled with Jesus. In the kingdom, the Father is thrilled with the Lord Jesus Christ. In the kingdom, He is all in all. Every saint bows down before Him. Every creature praises His name. Every hand is clapped for His majesty. Everything in everywhere, in every corner of the kingdom, and everything in the Trinity is yielded in praise to the Lord Jesus Christ. Heaven simply cannot get enough of Him at all. And so the application is very reasonable. This is my beloved Son. Hear Him. Hear Him. It's rather popular in our day to refer generally to God. We need to accept God. We need to hear God. We need to follow God. I want to say to you, I appreciate the sincerity of such confessions, but in this day, beloved, you have to understand, the Father and the Spirit demand not merely following God. The Father and Spirit want us to follow Jesus. We publicly confess His name. It's not enough to believe in God. The demons believe and they what? They have the decency to tremble unlike many of our fellow humans. But here, he says, hear the Lord Jesus, and he beckons you to hear him today. To yield it all and to give yourself to him. To neglect Jesus is to offend God. To reject Jesus is to reject all there is that's meaningful to God. We must do with him. Oh, this is the experience. Now, that's why I've got to turn your attention to 2 Peter chapter 1. Peter picks up on this, and he applies it. And basically what he argues here is that the only Lord and kingdom bringer that the Father has ever commissioned and endorsed and sent happens to be the Lord Jesus Christ. He and He alone is the true and living way sent by God. Now you have to understand, every founder of every world religion claims some kind of commissioning by God. 
in one way or another. Very few, and I'm not aware of any, come on their own authority. They claim in one way or another that God sent them. And the entire New Testament has as a throbbing theme that only Jesus is sent by the Father. In fact, His name indicates such. In the Hebrew, Messiah. In the Greek, Christ. And even in the name, the name implies that Jesus and Jesus alone is sent by the Father. And Peter gives us good reasons to believe that. He is the one that will find it, that in this life and finally in the future kingdom receives the kingdom at the hands of the Father. And so Peter picks up on this in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, and argues Christ and Christ alone is the true and living way into the kingdom sent by the Father. Now, why should we believe this? Well, one reason happens to be his statements. His statements. Look at verse 16. We did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mount. And we just looked at that in Mark chapter 9. But do you see that first um, phrase in verse 16? We did not follow cunningly devised fables. In other words, Jesus did not cunningly and craftily organize and arrange and calculate his words to deceive the people. And so when Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, the life, no one comes to the Father but by me, the Lord Jesus Christ was not inventing truth. He was declaring it, sent from the Father. So let me say to you, in order to believe that Islam and Buddhism and Hinduism and all the other isms that soon should become Muslims is legitimate, you have to disagree with Jesus Christ and attack his integrity. I know you probably don't mean to do that. I understand that. But when you demand of us that we treat all religions the same and we view all religions the same, you are forcing us with the choice. Do we choose your word and the word that is popular in some sectors in our society, or do we choose the word of Jesus Christ and Beach Haven Baptist Church has news for you, Jesus isn't losing that debate around here. His statements are full of integrity and truth. And I've got to ask you and press you, in fact. You believe all religions are the same and there are many doors to God and many religions and many ways to God. Jesus does not. He disagrees with you emphatically. Are you comfortable with that? I mean, is there something about God and heaven and judgment and sin and salvation that you know that Jesus didn't know? Are you superior to Jesus Christ? Well, around here, we don't think we are. And we about prove it every week, if not every day. He is the only hope of reaching God. So that's the first reason. Because of His Word. But second... Not only his word, but his witnesses. Muhammad claims that he was in a cave meditating in AD 623, and Gabriel appeared to him and communicated the Quran to him 
and commissioned him on behalf of God to restore truth into the world. He claims a divine commissioning in a private cave in the Middle East. Well, Joseph Smith, the founder of the Latter-day Saint Church, claims that he was in his bedroom uh, about September of 1823, and the angel Moroni appeared to him and commissioned him to restore truth as well in so many words. Gave him a special pair of glasses, showed him some plates no one's ever found, and he wrote and attempted to restore truth to the world, having received a commissioning from a private bedroom in upstate New York. Sung Myung Moon in 1954, who's recently passed away and changed his mind, um, was on a Korean hillside. <laughs> he was on a Korean, I'm sorry. He was on a Korean hillside praying, and he says that Jesus himself actually appeared to him and commissioned him to restore truth in the, in the world as he was in a private prayer meeting on a Korean hillside. Chapter 1, verse number 16. We did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of His majesty. So Peter, James, and John were there, along with Moses and Elijah. They could report to both worlds what happened at the Mount of Transfiguration. You could have called them before a court to testify. Uh, it, this something similar happened at Jesus' baptism. It's very possible that much of Jerusalem and Judea were at Jesus' bat uh, baptism in Matthew 3 and verse uh, 5. Uh, his baptism happened a little later in Matthew chapter 3. But there were many witnesses there, including John the Baptist. And then Jesus prayed in John chapter 12, Father, glorify your name. And the Father spoke in a loud voice audibly, to where all heard and said, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. And a crowd was there present at the Passover. And then in Jesus' resurrection glory and His appearances, He appeared at least ten times, perhaps twelve. And He appeared to as few as one and perhaps as, and, and as many as five hundred at one time. Oh, they were hallucinating. Well, you ask some of those who specialize in such things and I think they'll tell you, you don't hallucinate 500 people don't hallucinate the same hallucination at the same time in the same place. 500 at one time, according to 1 Corinthians 15. So let me ask you to make the comparison here. Muhammad, a commissioning in a private cave. Joseph Smith, a private commissioning in a private bedroom. Sung Myung Moon, a private commissioning in a private prayer meeting. Or Jesus Christ in the presence of many witnesses. When God wants to do a new thing, He doesn't do it privately. He does it in a way where we can take our best skills and verify it in the presence of many witnesses. Folks, that's why there are four Gospels. The Old Testament law demanded that everything had to be established by two or three witnesses in a court of law. We've got four Gospels, five if you count Revelation as I do. And Jesus in His resurrected glory had more than 500 at one time. So trust Him because of His Word. Trust Him and Him alone because of His witnesses. But third, trust Him because of His prophecy. Some estimate that one quarter, 25% of the entire Bible is predictive prophecy. Now not all prophecy is predictive, sometimes it's preaching, but 25% gets into detail about what will take place in the future. In other words, God and His Word feels perfectly free to inspire authors to record, record history before it happens. 
Dr. Criswell used to call this the Bible's proverbial neck on the line. And did you know, other sacred texts do not engage in this kind of predictive prophecy to this detail and to this extent. Now let me ask you something. In order to foretell the future, what quality must you have? Well, you have to know everything even before it happens. You have to be omniscient, omni-all, science, knowledge. You have to have all science, all knowledge of the future. Well, did the human authors of the Bible know everything? Oh, of course not. So where did they get this understanding and the detail about the future? Indeed. Believe him because of his prophecy. Now, what is prophecy? Biblical prophecy is not nebulous. It's not ambiguous. It's not the kind of thing that any future event could fulfill like Nostradamus or others. I, uh, in fact, some of the things that go on among Christians that claim to be prophecy aren't prophecy at all. When I was in high school, I had a friend write me and tell me about a prophecy her mother made in church one Sunday morning during the worship. Now this is in the state of California that at the time had about 25 million people. Some of the neatest things in the Christian faith in the United States were taking place in Southern California in the L.A. Basin, or the Los Angeles area at least. And many folks were coming to Christ and some neat things were taking place there. And she wrote me upset and said, my mom got up and prophesied in church Sunday that this week someone's going to die and someone's going to be saved. Well, in a state of 25 million people, do you think? <laughs> Biblical prophecy is not that ambiguous or undefined. You can't really measure that. Surely in a state of 25 million people, someone's going to die and someone's going to come to the Lord. Even on the West Coast. <laughs> Here, here's a prophecy. I'm, I'm not announcing one. I'm giving an example. At 2.33 today, a red Miata is going to attempt to turn into our parking lot and is going to be plowed over by a four-ton dump truck headed west. And the Miata is going to be driven by a single young lady. The dump truck is going to be driven by a single young man. They're going to fall in love and be married September 23rd of 2015 and have five children and live in a six-bedroom house. <laughs> now, you could measure that, couldn't you? I mean, you could stand out there at 2.33, 2.34, get there at 2.30 if you want to be a little early, and you could stand there and you could measure that, and then you could measure the drivers. You could measure the color of the vehicles and the tonnage of the dump truck. You could measure the date of the wedding. You could measure the children. You could measure the house. You could tell by the detail whether or not that prediction was true. Beloved, the Bible does the latter, not the former. It gets into detail. Now, there are some who would say, well, you know, when it comes to prophecy of Christ, Jesus accidentally fulfilled it or self-fulfilled it. I mean, the, the scripture tells of Jesus, the Messiah, would speak in parables. So Jesus wanted to deceive everyone, or at best, he accidentally spoke in parables. And so that's what he did. 
Well, let me ask you, I, I can't give that, and I don't buy that at all, but what about those prophecies over which no ordinary man would have control? Let me mention just a few. How about, how about um, the place of Jesus' birth, Micah 5.2? I couldn't control that I was born in Jacksonville, Florida at the Naval Air Station Hospital. No ordinary person can control his or her place of birth. And then what about his family, the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? I can't control that I am Curtis Jones's and Del Mills's son. I, I can't control that I'm Carolyn's uh, son. I can't control that I'm Ida and Hazel's son, grandson. I can't control that at all. What about his tribe? See, not only would he be born into the family of Israel, he would actually be born into one of the 12 tribes. And the scripture specifies that, the tribe of Judah, not the other 11. And then what about his royal line? There were many families in Judah, but he was born into the family of David, the royal line in Judah. And then what about his rejection by his own people? We can hardly control that. Isaiah says that would happen. Then what about the fact that Gentiles would seek him? And, well ever since his resurrection in Pentecost, but uh, also before his death in uh, John, 20, uh, John 12, 20, and 21. And then, let's go to the next slide. What about the fact that he was falsely accused and that he was crucified with criminals? You can hardly control that. What about the fact that his hands and feet would be pierced by crucifixion? That prophesied 750 years before the Persians and Romans used it. And then his bones would not be broken. His side would be pierced, and he would be buried with the rich in a rich man's tomb. He would be buried in that one. Those are prophecies detailed and specific that you can measure that an ordinary man would not have control over. Now, Michael Bettinger has sold 12 million college math textbooks that he has authored. Calculus, geometry, algebra. Those in seventh grade can blame him for putting letters in math. He, from, he uh, taught at University of Indiana and Purdue University, and here's what he has found. He explains that the probability of a blindfolded person finding a red grain of sand in a stadium full of white sand is 1 in 10 to the 17th power. You would only do it once in 10 with 17 zeros behind it number of chances. The probability of winning most lotteries is 1 in 10 to the 7th power. But the probability of one person in history having the circumstances of fulfilling just 9 of these prophecies, and we mentioned 12, is this. 1 in 10 to the 76th power. That would be like winning the lottery 10 times out of 10 tries. Don't get any ideas. And it would be like... It would be like finding that red grain of sand four times in four attempts in that stadium full of white sand. It's very hard to calculate the certainty of the prophecy of the Word of God, and that's what Peter says in verse 19. He says here, and so, let me read it literally, we have the certain <laughs> prophetic word which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. And know this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, explanation, or origin. 
For prophecy never came by the will of man, and that's emphatic. But holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit, and all of God's people said, Amen. Now you may be saying, well, if Jesus is the only way, that just closes the door to all the other religions into heaven. You have to understand, it's worse than that. It's not as if there's a Buddhist door to heaven and a Hinduist door and a moral door and a world religion door and a New Age door into heaven. Then there's the Christian door. And Jesus has slammed all the other doors shut and opened only His. Folks, it's not that case at all. It's that there aren't any other doors. There's just one. And Jesus said, I am the door. And you may be saying, well, then very few people ever get into heaven. I don't know. My friend Ken Keithley at Southeastern Seminary has done some reflection on this, and he specializes in the doctrine of salvation. And here are some things that he has uh, posted in a recent blog post. He begins with the assumption that life begins at conception. The moment an egg is fertilized, you have a human person in the sight of God with a soul. Life begins at conception, and infants and small children who die go to heaven. I'll unpack that later at a later date, but I'm convinced of it. I believe the Bible at least infers that if it doesn't specifically teach it in those texts. Infants and small children who die in infancy before the age of judgment or what some call the age of accountability go to heaven. Number two, 80% of fertilized eggs implant in the mother's womb, but only 44% are alive six weeks later. Only 36% of those are delivered. Birth is not the normal course of events for those that are conceived in the womb. It is unusual to be born. Only 18% of those conceived ever reach their fifth birthday. 82% never see their fifth birthday. Due to in utero, infant, and childhood deaths, four out of five persons ever conceived in human history have gone to heaven because they died before reaching the age of accountability in the womb or in infancy or in young childhood. That's why I believe the Bible says there are myriads and myriads and myriads and ten thousands upon ten thousands that are before the Father in heaven. Now Jesus did say about those of us who are born Few are those who enter into life. Many are those who enter into destruction. In other words, if you're born, and it looks like you made it, the onus is on you. Few of those living enter into the narrow gate. Broad is the gate, and many are those who enter into destruction. It's on you. Jesus is the only way. And he's made that statement. He's made it clear. And he has substantiated it with his word, with his eyewitnesses, and with his prophecy. So what must I do? The Bible says to repent. To turn away and repudiate anything opposed to Christ and keeping you from rushing to Him in faith and falling madly in love with Him and giving Him your all. Whatever is keeping you from Him, 
repent. Turn it all away. For unless you repent, the Savior said, you shall likewise perish. Repent. Turn it away. In other words, I have failed to meet those demands, to deny myself, take up the cross, and follow Him. Repent. Change your heart. Change your mind. God will help you. But do it now. Do it today. The Savior demands it. And then trust Him. The Bible says we're saved by grace through faith. That not of ourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast. You've had faith today. I've used this before, but the food that you've consumed this morning and whatever it is that you've drunk this morning, you trusted someone to deliver it to you without toxins or pollutants. If you can trust humans, it's time to trust Jesus who died and was buried and raised again on the third day. It's time to repent and believe in Him and give yourself to Him. And we're going to give you that opportunity to do so right now. Father, we thank You for the good news of the Word of God. We praise You for Jesus. Thank You that He's lifted up and He is high and He is exalted. I thank You that You have done everything necessary to remove doubt from us that He is the true and living way. And we pray that all the forces of heaven would be given to this moment to expel forces of evil and forces of doubt and forces of unbelief and forces of wickedness that would keep us from coming to Jesus Christ. I pray that friends today would rush to Him quickly and say yes to Him in repentance and faith in the gospel. As you're sitting there, why don't you just talk to God for a moment? And why don't you get real honest with Him? And if you're humble, and if you're grieving over your sin and you've got sorrow, and if you're willing to turn your back on that and turn yourself to Jesus Christ and trust His cross alone for your hope of eternal life, He will hear you. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Call on Him right where you're sitting. Admit to him that you have not met his demands for the whole world. You've not denied yourself. You've not taken up his life. You've not followed him. Go ahead and let your heart break. But Jesus paid the death penalty for that. Christ died for us. And the Father raised him for our justification. He is hope. Now transfer your hope from the world or yourself or wherever it is and transfer it completely to Christ and tell the Father that you're doing that. Now ask Him to help you be a serious and public follower of Jesus Christ. Never to be ashamed of Him, but to always be proud of Him. I'm going to ask our staff to come stand here in the front real quickly.
No one's looking around. Every head is bowed. Every eye is closed. And I want to ask you to do this for me. If you just talk to the Lord that way, I want you to lift up your eyes right now and make eye contact with one of us. Would you do that, please? Real quickly and keep your eyes up. Good. Keep looking. Keep looking. Keep looking. Don't look down. Keep looking. If you just prayed that way, turning yourself over to the Lord. Keep looking. Anyone in the balcony? Here's what we're going to do. The Lord now commands you to follow him in immersion and a zealous commitment to his local church. Here's what I want you to do. If you're looking up, I want you to come. Stand up right now. Come meet one of these staff members. Go ahead, come on. Anyone else? Go ahead and come. You're not ashamed of Jesus. Not ashamed, you come. You're in the midst of friends, we want you to come. Now, if you're ashamed, you, you need to stay where you are. But if you're not ashamed, come. Anyone else? Others of you need to make commitments to the Lord by becoming part of Beach Haven Baptist Church. You know the Lord, and you need to become part of Beach Haven Baptist Church by baptism, transfer statement. We'll help you out, whatever you need. You come. God's called you to ministry or missionary service. We want you to come. Maybe you need to rededicate your life. You come. Let's stand together right now. John, lead us in that first verse. You respond as God leads you. Come on.